From the Salem Center for Policy at the University of Texas at Austin, welcome to an episode of Policy in Pieces. I'm your host, Scott Bogus. One of the pushbacks I have from this trend towards demanding more and more disclosure, sometimes from regulators, sometimes from investors, is that can lead to a box-ticking approach where you can hit the target but miss the point. You can do well on these metrics. So if I know that I am going to be evaluated according to my diversity metrics, I am going to put some maybe minorities on the board to tick the box. I'm not going to be concerned so much about developing this um, corporate culture that is going to encourage dissent and, and tolerate failure. That was London Business School professor Alex Edmonds talking about the right way and the wrong way of pursuing corporate responsibility. He's a top finance scholar writing on ESG issues and recently authored a book called Growing the Pie, which tries to help recalibrate how we should evaluate the performance of companies, dispelling a common belief that corporate purpose and profit can't coexist. He explains all this and more on today's episode. My co-host is McCombs Business School student, Mayan Grupto. Alex, welcome to the program. It's great to be here, Scott. Thanks so much for the invitation. Doe, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Great. So, Alex, we're excited to have you here today on the program to talk about the business case for social responsibility. And we're excited because I think you bring a unique perspective to a topic that for many years has been trying to get the full attention of world leaders and policymakers and now does. You're a highly respected academic. Uh, you focus on evidence-based policy. You're an ardent supporter, I think, of social responsibility. But you also seem to pour a fair amount of cold water on a lot of the claims and justifications of other people who are supporting uh, social responsibility. We want to dig in to a lot of those details. But before we do, we just want to explore a little bit of your background. And uh, as I said, you are an academic. You are a well-respected professor. And I just want to ask, uh, how did that come to be? Did you always know you were going to be a professor? No, absolutely not. So when I um, was at university, I studied economics and management at Merton College, Oxford. I wanted to go into investment banking. So, so why? Um, obviously, there's some lucrative trimmings from that. But seriously, that was honestly not the reason. I just thought it'd be great to be involved in large scale transactions between companies to join um, as a 21 year old analyst and to be able to work on some of the biggest deals and also with some really, really smart people. So in my second year, my boss was a guy called William Chalmers, who is now the CFO of Lloyd's, one of the large banks in the UK. I've kept in touch with him for the past 20 years. And to work with inspirational people like that was the reason for going into investment banking. So what happened that made you change your mind? And how did you end up on the academic track and pursuing a PhD at MIT? So I really enjoyed my time in investment banking. So you have a lot of reformed bankers who got mistreated and wanted to run away from it because of that. That wasn't the case with me. I got treated well by the seniors that I work with. But it was more the bandwidth of your contribution. So what do I mean by bandwidth? So I remember the first time I worked on a deal and the deal completed. We were advising Abbey National, one of the large UK banks, on a sale. I worked for seven months on that deal. And then when it got completed, it was announced in the Financial Times. It made the front page. I thought, this is fantastic. And then the next day, the Financial Times was about something completely different. So I thought, well, I've worked seven months of my life solving one company's problems at this one time. And then I also looked to the people who were doing, an equity, doing equity research, and they were writing research reports, such as what is the impact of increased female participation in the workforce on equity returns. And I thought, this is more timeless. This can be read by investors all around the world. So I thought, well, can I go into a research career and not necessarily research within an investment bank, but more fundamental research? And so that's what led me to pursue the PhD at MIT. So you went to MIT, you earned a PhD, and when you're getting a PhD, you have to decide what to do research on. Can you just tell us, A, what is your research program? Does it have a focus? And B, how did you arrive at that focus? So I remember when I went to a, a conference when I was doing my PhD, it's the Financial Management Association or FMA. And in that, they have a doctoral tutorial where they have some of the leading lights of the profession tell you advice for a junior um, academic. And so they tell you, well, how do you choose a research topic? 
And one leading faculty said, you need to think about what is being published in the journals, what's going to be cited, and where is your skill set? And then the person after him got up and said, I completely disagree with this. You need to do what you are passionate about. And as some of you might know, this person is called Jonathan Burke. He's one of the most successful people in the profession. And that's always what I've tried to do is to think about, well, what is really fun? So what that means is my research is on quite wacky topics and quite scattered topics. So my very first paper was the effect of football, soccer results on the stock market. My most recent publication was on the effect of music on the stock market. And we can come to those papers in detail later. But then you introduced me, Scott, by saying a lot of my research is then on social responsibility. And that's a completely different topic. But those are things I'm just passionate about, right? Sports and music are my two main hobbies. And social responsibility, I do fundamentally believe that business should be a force for good. So for me, this is not just a research topic. It's not just something I'm doing because ESG is hot right now. I fundamentally believe that the way people should do business and what I want to try to pass on to my students when I teach is to do business in a way that benefits wider society as well as being financially successful. So we're going to ask you a lot of questions about that. Let me start by asking, when did you decide that was important? And in particular, did any of your research help inform that decision? You mean to work specifically on social responsibility? Yeah. When did social responsibility become important to you? Yeah, so it's difficult. Like often you can have the narrative fallacy, which is you look at your life going backward and say, oh, because of this, so I ended up making this and it's all logical. I think I want to avoid reading too much into it. But something I've always just liked doing is things that focus on the long term. So as I mentioned, sports is one of my main hobbies. And they're doing things like running marathons. You put in a a lot of training. There's a lot of short-term pain. There will be some long-term benefit in terms of fitness. Same with music. You're practicing and it takes maybe years before you can actually play a piece. And I think that's something which just naturally led me to think about companies' long-term decisions, so long-term investment. And now finance had studied investment for decades, but most of that investment was capital investment, where even in the short term, you can see I've built a factory. Now, maybe that factory doesn't become profitable for five years, but you can at least see some of that. But when we think about social responsibility, you're investing in intangible capital. So you might be building a stronger corporate culture, a stronger amount of trust with your customers. And those are things with particularly long-term horizons. So I think that the long-term intangible building that I like to do in my own life is something that just naturally drew me to that. I didn't think deliberately, oh, because I am liking sports and music, let me deliberately try to work on long-term tangible investment. It might just be more subconsciously that I just landed on that topic as something that I found fun. As you talked about social responsibility, in 2015, you gave a TED Talk on the social responsibility of business, which was viewed over 500,000 times. And last year, you published a book called Grow the Pie. Is it common for uh, finance professors to seek to educate non-academic audiences? And can you explain what led to this? I think it's not common. So if indeed your goal as a finance professor is to have academic success as a professor, the only audience that you really care about is other academics. So your goal is to focus exclusively on publishing papers in top academic journals. And actually, if you are doing something more mainstream, then there are some people who look down on you negatively. They think, well, you're dumbing down your research. Maybe a bit like an indie musician whose music then becomes mainstream. They're said to be sort of selling out and not being pure to this. But it depends upon why you became a finance professor to begin with. So a lot of my work is on purpose. And I think about what is the purpose of a finance professor. It's the creation and dissemination of knowledge. So the creation of knowledge is really important. You need to create rigorous research. But to me, dissemination, that was one of the big reasons why I left investment banking to begin with. When I looked at the people doing equity research, they wrote research reports that were read by investors across the world. And I wanted to show that my research, yes, it does speak to academic audiences and it is respected by academics. But even if there's no instrumental benefit in terms of career progression, in terms of, uh, say, writing for 
the Wall Street Journal or the Financial Times are writing a book, that's something that intrinsically I get a lot of satisfaction about. I want to make sure that my research, when I spend five years working on a topic, fighting with referees and editors, that people are benefiting from the small amount of knowledge that that has hopefully created. So in your view, why do business exist and how would you define social responsibility within the context of a farm? Yeah, so what I work on is is a business's purpose. And so what I mean by a purpose is why a business exists intrinsically. So what do I mean by intrinsically? It's what the business would be doing, even if it did not have to think about profit. Right. So often people think, yes, profit is an important responsibility of business. And that's right. But I think why companies exist is to create value for society. So it might be if you're a pharmaceuticals company to make drugs that transform human health. If you're a telecoms company, it might be to use your technology to enhance socioeconomic progress. And sometimes that could be just in basic telecom services, but it could be in wider areas. So if you're Vodafone, the UK telecoms giant, that led to them launching M-Pesa, which is a mobile money service in Kenya. And so why is that different from the standard view of business? I think if business is first motivated by the desire to create value for society, and then sees profit as a byproduct, that then leads them to making many decisions, which you might not have justified with a pure profit focus, but ultimately it does lead you to becoming profitable. And I think a good analogy here is to a person's purpose, right? Often people think, oh, I would like a purposeful career. So people should not think about what career is going to make me the most money. Instead, what career do I love to do? And then if you do a career that you love, then you will be successful at it. And ultimately, you might become financially even more uh, well off than had you chosen based on just what you can foresee in terms of the financially lucrative career. So I think just the analogy of a person choosing a career that's purposeful is similar to a company taking purposeful actions. These should be ones that is intrinsically um, connected to creating value for society. And if you create values well, then ultimately people will pay for it and you'll become profitable. So on this view, I have heard you talk or write about on multiple occasions Milton Friedman's essay from 50 years ago, uh, that companies should only focus on shareholders. And I've heard you say both that that's incorrect, but maybe not as incorrect as people today believe it is. And assuming I got that interpretation right, or even if I got it wrong, uh, what is your view on Milton Friedman, his essay from 50 years ago, and how you would recast it today? Yeah, thanks very much, Scott. And you've captured my view uh, quite well. So often people who are in the ESG or responsibility camp, the way to get accepted in polite society is just to rant on Milton Freeman and argue why he's completely wrong. So his title is The Social Responsibility of Business is to Increase Its Profits. And that just sounds offensive, right? The only thing a company should care about is its profits. But with anything, I think we need to first sort of read things with an open mind and actually read his entire article and see what he's trying to say. And what he argued is that as long as you define those profits as long term profits, it's actually not so bad for a company to focus on that. Because in order to create long term profits, you need to treat society well, right? You need to invest in your workers. Otherwise, they'll leave or they won't be productive. You can't pollute the environment or your brand will be hurt. And you need to build customer trust. Otherwise, your customers will walk away. So I do think that Milton Friedman has much more um, value in 2021 than people accuse him of being. They're saying this is a really outdated view. Actually, long-term profits is something good. However, you're also right, Scott, that I still think that companies should go beyond that. And why is that? Well, Milton Friedman argues that when a company makes a decision, it should do so for instrumental reasons. Before making an investment, you should try to predict what is the effect on long-term profits, and only if it's positive should you do it. For example, if I'm going to build a toy factory, how many toys will that factory um, produce? What can I sell it for? Is that more than the cost? However, most of the important decisions for companies today are intrinsic and intangible, as I alluded to earlier. So if a company thinks, should I give more parental leave to my employees? How can you calculate how much more productive they'll be, how much profit you'll get from that greater productivity? It's impossible to do that. 
Instead, what I think companies should adopt is this intrinsic approach, do things because it's the right thing to do. And ultimately, the research of myself and some other academics shows that this idea of creating value for society ultimately does lead to profits later on down the line, even if you could not predict them to begin with. So where I'd say companies should go beyond Milton Friedman is you can actually free yourself from having to justify every decision with a financial calculation. And just to ensure that I'm putting my money where my mouth is, why am I choosing to do this podcast, right? If I was Milton Friedman, I would say, oh, the hour I'm doing this podcast in, I could instead do consulting and earn this amount of money. But if my purpose is the creation and dissemination of knowledge, not only do I find it fun to talk to both of you, but this is also consistent with my purpose, maybe unexpectedly somebody ends up listening to that podcast and maybe gives me some consulting down the line. But I'm never going to be able to predict that. Let me just do this because I find it fun. That's why I choose my research. I chose the topics that I found fun. And I'm going to do it because it's consistent with my purpose of disseminating knowledge. So let's, let's go back to, I like your parental leave example. And this is a choice that a firm can make. There's also a lot of voices in government that say it shouldn't be a choice, it should be mandatory. How should we think about voluntary versus mandatory in the context of the firm and doing the quote-unquote right thing? Yeah, so I think it's often we need to think about, well, what is the market failure here? So government intervention is something that I am certainly very open to. I'm not one of these strong free marketers thinking it, we should always leave it to companies. But before we think about regulating something, what is the failure? And there are many potential failures, right? One of them could be an externality. For example, if you are emitting a lot of carbon, that's something which is going to be bad for the environment and that's not going to be fully captured by the company. Can we regulate something like that? Another market failure could be competition. Uh, other market failures might be, say, the, the lack of information. So companies might be doing some bad actions and then customers and investors don't know about it. But for something which is a human resource policy, it's not clear why, where the market failure is. Because if indeed a company is going to um, not invest in its employees, then ultimately in the long term, it will suffer from that. And also, we don't want to be too prescriptive, right? Because it's a company's um, prerogative, I think, to choose the best HR policies that are relevant for its particular context. So one of the issues with government regulation is that that tends to be one size fits all. They're saying, well, every company should do X, when actually, for a particular companies, it might be that actually the best thing to do is not to spend money on parental leave. Maybe they want to spend money on training and skills development for its employees because maybe that's the most material issue. So a lot of my work is on really the importance of treating workers well and investing in them. But the best type of investment might vary from company to company. Now, there will be some minimum standard that you want to be able to offer. And that's going to be important to make sure that workforce is inclusive. But is there something that we should say, well, there's a mandated minimum of one year, let's say. There are some companies that choose to offer that. But I think I would hesitate if I was a government before mandating that for all companies. So let's, let's also circle back to your description of intrinsic versus an instrumental approach to measuring value at a firm. And let's also, you're a professor, let's take it to the classroom and think about when we're teaching corporate finance, we teach aspiring business leaders that they should only invest in positive net present value projects. You estimate potential future free cash flows, you decide what the risks associated with those cash flows are, you get a present value of those cash flows, you compare it to the cost of investment, and if it's greater than zero, you accept the project. But as you just said, and in your TED Talks, you say in practice, you can't reduce every decision to a mathematical calculation. And you gave some examples of this. You talked about the Merck. You talked about Merck giving a recipe to make penicillin available to competitors circa World War II as a right thing to do. You gave another example in your Grow the Pie book about Merck uh, solving river blindness in Africa in the 1980s by producing and giving away almost 3 billion doses of uh, mectazan. And they, they did this without any measurable near-term benefit. And I guess my question is, why did they do that? And if it can't measure the value in a positive NPV project, uh, how did they decide to do that right thing? 
Yeah, that's a really important point. So, so first, let me say that net present value is still a really useful tool in many cases. So this is the idea that when you can forecast future cash flows with some degree of certainty, then use that. However, what I'm trying to recognize is actually net present value can't always be used in a world in which there is a lot of uncertainty. And what I want to do is I want to stress the difference between uncertainty and risk. Right? Risk is something that we are able to address. Let's say I'm going to build the toy factory. I don't know how many toys I might be able to sell or the price. But if I've got a rough midpoint, I can do a sensitivity with different amounts of prices and different amounts of sale volume. But when you think about the decisions that you made, Scott, you, you discussed, Scott, how can we even have a midpoint? Do we have even any sort of mid number of what the reputational benefit from these Merck's actions will be? And so that's why I'm saying, well, in a world of uncertainty, we need to have the confidence to be able to take some decisions that you cannot justify with net present value. But on the flip side, it absolutely cannot be a free for all. So many of people who criticize responsible business have the valid criticism that if there is no way to know how to make decisions, then there's complete arbitrariness and lack of accountability. So what I do in my book and my research more generally is I say, yes, you want to be able to move away from net present value, but you need to supplement it with something else. And so what I have in chapter three of my book is three key principles that companies should ask uh, before deciding to do something that can't be justified with net present value. And let me just give a flavor of one of them in the interest of time. And one of them is called the principle of comparative advantage. And what that says is a company should only do a social action if it has unique expertise in doing that. Why do I think that's useful? Because what it suggests is that the social value that you're creating is going to be much, much higher than the investment that you're making. So why for Merck do they do things like give ivermectin, a drug to cure river blindness, also known as mectazan, for free? Why do they also give the secrets of um, research penicillin and develop that? That is linked to the core business, the core expertise of being a pharmaceuticals company. But let's contrast that with what many companies did in the light of um, George Floyd's murder. What they did was they donated loads of money to Black Lives Matter. Now, clearly, as an ethnic minority myself, I believe that diversity is absolutely essential. However, is that something that companies have a comparative advantage in doing? Right? Their expertise is not choosing which charitable causes are most worthy. Black Lives Matter is absolutely a worthy charity, but so are cancer charities, so are animal rights charities, so are gender equality charities. So why is it that a company chooses which charitable cause to support? I think it's much better for a company to think about what is our expertise and make sure that if we are doing socially responsible actions, that it is linked to our core comparative advantage. So when I was reading your examples of the Merck doing these great things for society, it made me immediately think about a more current event, and this might be an unfair question, so you can call it unfair if you want, but calls from Moderna who took government contracts to help develop uh, a lot of its long-term IP to develop a vaccine for COVID. And now there are calls that Moderna should give away the recipe, the IP to anybody to manufacture it because of that. Can you comment on that? And is it a right analog to compare it to the Merck and what they did and where Moderna is today? Or is that an unfair question? Yeah, so it, this is a difficult situation and there will be different views on that. So let me share my view and it, it may not be shared by all of your listeners. So it is important for pharmaceutical companies to be able to make profit. So as Merck's CEO, Kenneth Frazier said, you can't have winners if you don't have the money to pay for all the losers, right? Drug development is extremely risky, right? Most drugs fail. And even if they succeed, the amount that you need to spend on producing it and, and developing it and so on, that is, is, is absolutely massive. So without being um, fully into Moderna's situation, I don't know what the other drugs it's developing in its 
pipeline, which it can be financing with these profits. And also in terms of the, any government subsidies, again, without knowing the weeds of those details, the subsidies are still paying off in that even if Moderna was making a profit on the vaccine, the social benefit of a vaccine is still way, way higher than I think the profits that they're making. And so it does make sense for government to subsidise stuff, just like governments subsidise many other things, right? Governments will in the UK, they will subsidise education, they'll subsidise healthcare. Does this mean that if you end up um, making a lot of money from your education that you need to pay even more than you do from taxes anyway. Not necessarily, because I think the fact that it's subsidised does mean that the government recognises there's a big externality for, for being educated. And similarly, for a developing a drug, I do think that was brought about, the subsidy was brought about because the government realises that even if Moderna is making a profit, the benefit to society is much, much higher than that. So... Another thing you talk about in your book, and something that touches on a topic that I've often myself struggled with trying to understand, so I'm hoping maybe you can straighten me out, but you talk about the difference between errors of commission and errors of omission, and sometimes the latter aren't visible or punished, and you give a really nice example of Kodak and its failure to switch from film technology to digital technology, and you call that an error of omission, a silent mistake that led to their downfall and maybe wasn't criticized because it was an error of omission. And I've actually thought about that case a lot, and I wondered if there's an alternative interpretation. And I know we teach our students all the time that growth for growth's sake is bad, that can lead to empire building and wealth destruction. And can there be a case for a manager to pursue efficiently negative growth, wind down a company like Hodak and just say it shouldn't exist anymore and not develop digital photography? Yeah, so you raise a really important point, Scott. So my book is called Grow the Pie, and that's sometimes misinterpreted as being about growing the firm. So let's grow as great as possible, and then people think, well, that I don't agree with because there's planetary boundaries and so forth. But let me be clear what I mean by growing the pie. What's the growth that I talk about? It's creating social value. And social value is only created when resources are delivering more value than their opportunity cost. So the, ter- the importance of thinking about opportunity cost is really, really important. Right? There's always an alternative use for the resources. So if I go back to the example of companies donating to charity, if instead of doing that, they were able to invest in true diversity and inclusion programs within their company, or they were able to do things like launch and pays or the equivalent of that, that is the opportunity cost of charitable donations, which is why I do think comparative advantage is, is really, really important. Then when you go to an example such as Kodak, so let's say they had missed the digital revolution and there was no way back then I think the best thing to do is not to be a zombie company and continue to to operate, but to try to um, shut down and reallocate resources elsewhere in society. I would still say that's growing the pie, even though it's not growing the firm, because the resources can be used elsewhere. And a more modern day example of this is if you look at some Japanese companies like Panasonic and Toshiba, they employ people who used to make magnetic tape. And obviously, that's not a product in demand anymore. Um, But because there's a social taboo against redundancies, what they did is they don't want to make them redundant. They keep them in a job, but they have them um, work in what people call banishment rooms, where they have to just review security footage all day. Now, that doesn't give them meaningful work or skills development. It would be much better to reallocate those resources by allowing these people to be let go working without placement to find them new jobs in other companies, that would not be growing the firm, that would be shrinking the firm. But I think it would be growing the pie because otherwise you have a lot of human talent which is being wasted. And so I do think in many cases, actually downsizing will be um, the optimal um, action. Let's talk about your research on social responsibility. You have published papers on the relationship between employee satisfaction and equity values. And for example, in your research, you said companies listed in the 100 best companies to work for in America generated 2.3% to 3.8% higher stock returns per year than their peers from 1984 through 2011. Do you think can we uh, tie social responsibility to farm performance? And can you explain what you found and why your research are important in the context of social responsibility? 
Absolutely. So why did I even look at employee satisfaction to begin with? Because when you think about social responsibility, that could cover many dimensions. It could cover your impact on communities, your impact on the environment. So why I chose to look at employee satisfaction was two reasons. So number one is the concept of materiality. So in nearly every company, employees are a really important asset. Whereas the environment, yes, we all care about climate change, but that might be more relevant for an energy company than, say, a tech company. So this was something that was material in every company. And the second is that I had a really good uh, data source available, which was the list of the 100 best companies to work for, as you said. And so why was that really good? So I started this paper in 2007. So it's the final year of my PhD. And back then, right, um, ESG was really not this big a topic. There might have been a couple of data sources emerging, but they would have only been around for about two years or something. And so if I found a relationship, I could have just got lucky. Because this list was available from 1984, it meant that by the time I completed the paper, I had 28 years of data, so I could make sure it was robust. And importantly, those 28 years contained downturns as well as upswings. It contained the financial crisis. It contained September the 11th and the collapse of the internet bubble. And why is that important? Often people think like that social responsibility is a luxury. Well, in good times, it pays off, but in difficult times, companies should just focus on survival. And I was able to show that the outperformance that you mentioned, though, 23 to 3.8%, that was consistent throughout um, both uh, upswings and downturns. So what's the big punch on of that? It means that companies that are investing in their workers, they're not just being ethical and moral, that is part of it but they're also being business savvy, there is a financial payoff to do this. And so this is why in a lot of my work, I stress not only the moral and ethical case for business being responsible, but also the financial case. And, and why do I think that's important? Like clearly ethics and morals are, are key, but unless there's a strong financial case, I think this will always be secondary in the minds of some CEOs and the minds of some investors. So how did this particular paper shape your current thoughts and let me have you answer in a couple of ways. First, did you expect to find this result? Did you expect when you ran this that you would see that there'd be greater value to these companies that were great places to work? And two, did that in any way shape your views that you have today on social responsibility and the work that you're doing today? Yes, thanks, Scott. So I actually did think that I might find a result because whenever you start a project, right, there's a 95% chance that you're going to be finding no result, which is significant at the 5% level. So you do have to have some conviction that this is going to be holding. And I think this is why I end up doing research projects that I find fun, right? So if you look at the link between football and the stock market or soccer and the stock market, that seems a crazy thing, but I genuinely thought that there might be a link. So that led me to doing a paper that nobody else would have thought about. And then back then in 2007, right, responsibility was not a big topic. But I thought, well, let me spend all the time doing the analysis. I do think that people are really critical for the long term success of the company. So I did think that it would come out in the data. Now, clearly, it's not always going to be as you hope. But luckily, for me, in that case, that was something that ended up being very robust in the data. And then how did this lead to my future research? So what I found in the data, so what this result is, is a bit of a double-edged sword. Why? Because on the one hand, what it suggests is that investing in your workers does pay off in terms of financial returns. But on the other hand, it also suggests that the market isn't really getting it. Why? Because of this idea of market efficiency. So let's say investing in your employees does pay off. But if everybody knew that, then as soon as a company got onto the best companies list, the stock price would immediately rise and they wouldn't find higher returns going forwards. So the only way that you can find abnormal returns is not only that something needs to be good for firm value, but it needs to be mispriced. It needs to be underappreciated by investors. And this is why in my future work, I've always tried to emphasize the importance of long-term horizons for a company, because in the absence of that, given that investors don't fully price these things in, 
even an enlightened CEO might not make the investment if she's paid according to the short term. So some of my theory work on executive pay, uh, that has been highlighting the importance of long-term horizons. Also, my empirical work has tried to study the effect of short-term horizons on CEO decisions. I've also got um, some work on blockholders, large shareholders. How can large shareholders play a role in corporate governance? It is by trying to overcome the short-termism problem. Why? The idea is that if you're a large investor with skin in the game, then you have the incentives to get into the weeds of a company and look beyond just short-term earnings. And so that has led to most of my research being on long-term horizons, but from many different angles. You said that you had rich data at that time, but they were focused on the US. So do you think that the same relationship, the relationship of employee satisfaction and equity values would be held? in countries other than the U.S., particularly in developing countries? Do you think that social responsibility is important for developing countries as well? That's a really important point, though, because a lot of the research that we have is US focused because that's where the data is the strongest. But and this is one of my goals as a journal editor is that we have so many other um, companies and academics around the world. We can't just assume that what we find in the US is true elsewhere. So one thing I've done more recently with some co-authors is to expand that original study to over 30 countries around the world. And why can we do that? Fortunately, the best companies list was produced by one organization that does it in many, many countries around the world. So you have consistency of methodology. And what we find is that the results in the US generally hold for countries in which you have flexible labor markets like the UK and like Canada. However, if there's a country with lots of labor market regulation, you don't really get the same result. And why is that? It's because if you've got labor market regulation, then the um, regulation is already enforcing some minimum level of worker well-being. And therefore, you don't actually get much of a comparative advantage by treating your employees extremely well because there's already a minimum floor. In fact, as with any other investment, there probably is diminishing returns to investing in your employees. So if the minimum bar is already high because of regulation, if you're in the top 100, in your country, you might be actually in the point of diminishing or negative returns. What do you say to someone who says corporate responsibility is a luxury that only large companies can afford? Like, How can startup companies or small businesses pursue social responsibility while surviving in the market in the short term? I would say that their view of responsibility is true if you're not applying the idea of comparative advantage. So often people think responsibility involves splitting the pie differently. Let's donate money to charity and so on. However, if you think about social responsibility as using your comparative advantage of growing the pie, actively creating value, there's many things that you might be able to do to actively create value, which actually don't cost you a lot. So going back to um, the example of Vodafone launching M-Pesa in Kenya, which I alluded to earlier, that cost Vodafone about one million pounds. Now, that might sound a lot, but that was a tiny fraction of its multi-billion pound capital expenditure. What it required was just the mindset to think, oh, can we use our technology to this completely different area of uh, financial inclusion and mobile money? Now, for a small company, Even one million pounds might be a lot, but you can still think about this mindset of how can we use what is in my hand to serve wider society. And maybe I can give an example from a small company that I'm a customer of. It's called Barry's Bootcamp. It's a brutal gym, which was started in the US. It's around many, many states in the US. And they were shut over the pandemic, obviously, because um, gyms were closed because of lockdown. But what was in their hand was the ability to run fitness classes. And so what they did was they launched a lot of free Instagram fitness classes, which really made a difference to people self-isolating at home. Now, you might think, well, that's not that innovative, fitness companies offering fitness classes. But here's what was really special. What do they do with the um, reception desk workers? Right when the desk, when the gym is closed, they don't have a job. But what it turns out is that many of these desk workers are actors as their main job. And if you're an actor, what is in your hand? You're really funny. Well, how does that help out? 
Well, what we had in the pandemic was a lot of schools were shut and therefore there were lots of children at home and working parents found it really hard to do their job. And so what they offered was free Zoom storytelling sessions to these children to take the mind off the working parents. And so that's an example where this cost nothing, but the only cost was sort of the mindset shift required to think about creatively what is our expertise, what is our comparative advantage, and how can we use this to help society out in this difficult pandemic? So I will say, yes, even for small companies, you can be responsible if you think about comparative advantage, not just spending money. So let's shift gears a little bit and talk about how to effectuate social responsibility. And I want to do it from the perspective of shareholder disclosure. And in particular, what is the role of disclosure in pursuing social responsibility and business purpose when you think of agencies like the SEC? who is focused on transparency, not merit, and the goal is to f uh, facilitate communication between managers and shareholders, and presumably to reduce the amount of asymmetric information. So in that vein, how should companies explain their business purpose to shareholders? Yeah, so I think it's really important to disclose and to be transparent why this just explains to companies where you think your main sources of value are. And for many companies now, it will be the intangible capital, not just the tangible capital. However, what I will try and stress is that that reporting has to be a combination of quantitative metrics, but also narratives. So we have this trend right now towards disclosing more and more data on responsibility, the idea that you can measure responsibility. And clearly, as a finance professor, I do believe in the power of data. However, data can only be very partial. So let's say we care about diversity and inclusion. Right, you can disclose things like the percentage of women or minorities on the board or in the wider workforce. But there's so many other important elements of diversity. There could be socioeconomic diversity. It could be that you're hiring white males who never went to university, and yet they're providing a very a broad perspective, a different perspective. And you can have a corporate culture which is encouraging dissent, which is psychologically safe. Those are things which are not captured in the metrics. And so one of the pushbacks I have from this trend towards demanding more and more disclosure, sometimes from regulators, sometimes from investors, is that can lead to a box ticking approach where you can hit the target but miss the point. You can do well on these metrics. So if I know that I am going to be evaluated according to my diversity metrics, I am going to put some maybe minorities on the board to tick the box. I'm not going to be concerned so much about developing this um, corporate culture that is going to encourage dissent and, and tolerate failure. And we can do that with many of the other metrics, right? We talked about Panasonic and the banishment rooms, right? If people are going to be um, held accountable for the amount of redundancies, let's keep people in these jobs, and even if the work is not meaningful. So this is absolutely not to say, right, that data is not um, relevant. Clearly, if you're a company that claimed to care about diversity, but your diversity statistics were really, really bad, then that was not going to have any credibility. But you need to supplement those statistics with narratives to explain why you're doing what you're doing. And also processes. In particular, it's one thing to have a diverse workforce, but you also need processes to make sure that they're able to bring their best selves to work and also able to contribute a diverse set of viewpoints. So one analogy here might be to um, the US's No Child Left Behind Act uh, around 20 years ago. So that was motivated by some of the motivations I hear for ESG reporting is that um, education, that can't be measured. That's a non-accountable field. Let's try to have some concrete measures of it. And let's use this for capital allocation. Right, just like investors now might allocate according to ESG metrics, back then school districts would think, well, which are the schools that we want to allocate capital to? So what happened there was that you had a lot of schools starting to teach to the test and only focus on the specific dimensions of education that could be tested and could be quantified at the expense of many broader aspects of education. And similarly, the concern here is that if we are too prescriptive in terms of these um, ESG metrics and we ignore the fact that many important dimensions are qualitative, we could also have the skewing and the unintended consequences that we saw with No Child Left Behind. Last year, you wrote a Wall Street Journal opinion on how to give shareholders a say on corporate responsibility. 
Can you explain your say on Carpo's idea? Absolutely. So what is the challenge that what was the problem to which this was a solution? Right? Often we need to we, we hear so many remedies called for, but we need to ask, well, what is the failure that leads to the remedy? And so one of the biggest concerns that people have with social responsibility is that that could lead to management being unaccountable. Right? Managers can just pursue whatever social interest they personally like. And they can do this for reasons that are not creating shareholder value, right? If you're pursuing a lot of ESG goals, that gets you seen as the savior of capitalism. You could probably write a load of books about it later, but you're not creating um, shareholder value. So what I wanted to do was to make sure that, that you can pursue responsibility, but in a way that's consistent with shareholders' interests. Shareholders' interests could be twofold. First, it could be that they believe that social responsibility in the long term creates financial value. Or secondly, it could be they have purely non-financial, they have some non-financial objectives. They might just care about it because it's the right thing to do. It might be that there are some investors who are willing to sacrifice a few basis points or even a percentage point of return if it makes the planet cooler in the future. But you need to make sure that you have the shareholder buy-in because it's shareholders who own the company. So what my colleague Tom Gosling and I did was we wrote this article about a say on purpose. So what's the idea of that? It's that every year the company puts its purpose, which is its statement of non-financial objectives, to a shareholder vote. And also um, shareholders will vote on the implementation of that purpose which is, do they believe that um, the company has actually delivered on it? And the analogy here is to say on pay. So how the say on pay regime works in the UK and the EU is that you have two votes. One of them is on the pay policy, and that's once every three years, and that would be the same for purpose. And then there's a second vote on the implementation of the pay policy, and that would be the annual vote. Do shareholders believe that you've implemented purpose in the right way? And I think the reason to do this is to have the accountability that shareholders can have a say in the purpose statement. But also, if shareholders need to vote on it, then shareholders need to analyze it. And this will encourage shareholders to look beyond short-term earnings. Now, you see a flavour of this being borne out. It's known as, say, on climate. So there are some companies like Unilever that give their um, shareholders a say on their climate transition. Say on purpose is in that spirit, but broader. Why? Because for some companies, actually, climate might not be the most important issue. Or it might be an important issue, but there might be a trade-off. For example, if you're an energy company decarbonizing, you need to make sure you're not going to lead to a lot of job losses. And what we're doing here with the idea of say and purpose is to broaden the scope of the conversation beyond just climate, which is absolutely really important, but not the only ESG issue that most companies have to wrestle with. You had another Wall Street Journal article this year where you said it was problematic to tie CEO pay to ESG targets and went as far as to say, and I think this is a quote, uh, scrap all bonuses on both financial and non-financial targets and instead pay CEOs like owners with long-term shares they can't sell for five to seven years. Like you've studied CEO pay for a long time and this has been a conundrum that regulators have struggled with for years. It seems like a simple example. Is it really that simple and can it work? And if so, why is it not being done? Sure. So I'll first start with the um, problems with the current system and then explain why I think the solution I propose is actually a realistic solution, even though it might seem simple. So what is the problem with tying pay to ESG metrics? It's linked to my earlier comment about disclosure is that metrics are very partial. They will ignore many other important dimensions of social responsibility. So you can have the idea of teaching to the test. If you tie teachers pay to test scores, they'll underweight other dimensions of education. Similarly, if you tied CEO pay to certain ESG metrics, they might prioritize the number of jobs created, not the quality of those jobs. And they might only prioritize diversity and inclusion that can be shown in quantitative statistics, not other aspects of diversity, for example, hiring white males with a different educational background or creating a corporate culture that encourages dissent. So that's why I don't think that's a good solution then why do I think my preferred solution is um, a feasible one? Is what I want to do is I want to pay CEOs like owners. 
Right, if you think about an owner, a founder, they think about the long term, right? They want their business to grow because they're going to be at, at the helm for many years. They might pass on the business to their children. They think about as, themselves as owners. They don't think, will I get an extra bonus for hitting this particular target? No, the value of the company and what motivates them is the value of their share in the business. And they will do whatever they think is necessary to improve the business, even if it's not in a um, quantifiable metric, they will improve corporate culture, even if it doesn't go into the numbers. So I think we do need to pay workers like owners. So why is that solution, I think, reasonable? Well, first, I think it's the evidence. So there are, are papers published in the Journal of Finance, in the Strategic Management Journal. So there are across different disciplines showing the benefits of long-term equity compensation. Why do people have a reaction against that? Well, what they think is, well, we do need targets because we need to pay people to hit targets because otherwise they won't be motivated. But I don't think that that is, to, is the case. Right. So the idea that a company needs to pay according to an outcome, otherwise people may, won't be motivated to hit it. I don't think it's the case. Right. Hospitals, they clearly care about patient survival. I don't think hospitals pay doctors according to patient survival. Similarly, for us as academics, we care about teaching ratings, but I don't get paid according to my teaching ratings. Maybe if I did, then I might sort of make my classes easier because I'm going to get higher scores and so on. So we can still have the metrics and we can still make companies reporting according to that. And certainly if a CEO is not delivering over the long term on ESG or any other metric, then she should be out of a job. But I think this mechanical linkage of pay to those metrics does lead to the incentive to game. Instead, what I want to do is to free the CEO from thinking like an employee how can I maximize my bonus? Am I going to be hitting this target? And have her think like an owner, what can I do to create long-term value free of the need to justify everything by, is it going to be improving my bonus score? Just like the earlier conversation we had about Friedman and net present value, I think companies should be freed from having to justify everything with a net present value calculation, but could do things for intrinsic reasons, because we believe it's going to be in the long-term interest of the firm. I'm glad you brought back net present value because it made me think of a different uh, financial tool that we often try not to teach, and it's called payback. And many managers, I think, view projects on how fast can I show my shareholders that I did something in their benefit. And if we start going to longer-term metrics or having managers uh, incentivized to behave like long-term owners... Like, how do we get them over this pitfall of they have to show something in the near term to demonstrate they belong in the job as a CEO? Like, what is it reasonable that you can have a monitoring system that could achieve that end? Yes, I think it can. It is reasonable. But if investors recognize that you can show this, not just in, in numbers, but if you're talking about the process, processes and what you're trying to do to put this into practice. For example, it could be that you are, as a company, just developing a, a big pipeline of talent. And so why do you not have yet minorities in senior management? You think, well, it's actually not necessarily the best thing to parachute some outsiders in, but actually to home grow the talent. And you will explain, look, this is what we're having in terms of our hiring, this is what we're doing in terms of our internal promotion. And so it could be often processes. And we often have this our, our, ourselves as, as academics, right? You don't typically want to hold um, people accountable for publications after the first couple of years. But what you'll ask, what you'll try to look at is, well, what are the projects they're working on? Are they people who are um, going to conferences and, and getting their papers, uh, at least getting some particular exposure? So there are things that you can look at beyond quantitative metrics. And I think it's incumbent on investors to be willing to move beyond this just the desktop approach of let's have this arm length analysis of a company based on the numbers and have investors indeed getting into the weeds of a company, just like a venture capitalist would do, right? They will know that the metrics are not going to be there, but what they're trying to find out more is the processes that the companies are doing in order to create value. So you can have accountability, even if you're not having this in a purely quantitative way. Do you think large outside activist investors are on board with this approach? Would they be willing to engage in this particular way with a proposal like the one you're suggesting? 
I do think so. And there are certain activists that I know very well. So often the um, uh, common um, myth and the common story that people like to say is, well, activists, they're really short term. They're just going to be looking at the numbers and the profits and low profits going to cause them to go in. No, there's one very well-known activist. I won't mention them. Well, they say we are not going to have a meeting with them, with the company until we've done six to 12 months of our own research to make sure that we fully understand that company. And how can they afford to do that? They take really concentrated positions. So they take really big bets. When they take a stake, they become owners themselves, right? And owners in a really big way. So they have the incentive to make sure that they do their own homework and um, that uh, any proposals that they want to undertake are truly going to be in the long-term interest of the company, because if it's not, then the value of their own stake is going to go down. I know that there's this common idea that, well, investors, activists can undertake short-term actions to pump up the stock price and then exit before that comes to light. Well, that, number one, requires all other investors to, well, sufficiently other investors to be sort of blind to this and always to be fooled by this activism short-term game. And number two, it's not actually backed up by the research. If you look at the research published in the top journals, activists do create short-term value, but that short-term value does come consistent with an increase in long-term value as well. So it's not short-term at the expense of long-term, it's short-term and long-term. So I do believe there are many activists which do look beyond the numbers and try to get into the weeds of a company. So we've we've covered a lot of ground, and I'm and I actually want to even cover even more ground and talk about how we can apply this grow the pie mentality to public policy. And I've got a couple of questions about current events to see if you can't try to address them uh, using uh, your framework. And the first is on share repurchases, and I know this is something that you have done work on. It's been for many years a political issue, particularly in the U.S. and also in the U.K., where politicians believe that, you know, giving back capital to shareholders by buying back shares is bad and they shouldn't do it. They should be investing in R&D or other capital expenditures. And some even said, well, they're they're doing that to boost their earnings per share, to hit bonuses and earn higher payouts. And this issue hasn't gone away. It's been around for several years. I'm wondering can you talk about that? I know that you've done some work, not just as an academic, but consulting with, with government. And, you know, how can you apply your grow the pie to this topic? Thanks, Scott. So I earlier talked about growing the pie, not being about growing the firm, but considering opportunity cost. So when a company keeps capital within itself, then it, there's the opportunity cost of that capital does not go elsewhere and cannot be invested in other sectors of the economy. For example, there are many startups in, in areas such as clean energy. They need capital. Where does that capital come from? It's often institutional investors who have dividends and have buybacks and they have that capital to invest in these new sectors. Right. If we were to keep the money within the company, then it would be invested in negative NPV projects, most likely. Why? Because a company will only do a share buyback if it's already exhausted all of its positive net present value opportunities and it has no other good use of its capital. And I also think the idea of trying to ban or restrict share buybacks is crazy because let's think of the analogy of share buybacks for debt. It's paying down debt. Now, would we ever say companies should never be able to pay down debt. They should just keep the money in the firm. Anyone trying to pay down debt is trying to boost earnings per share by reducing its interest expense. That would be crazy, right? What companies do is they think about, well, let's take all the good projects. And if I've got cash left over, I'm going to pay down debt. That's what I do with my mortgage. What can I do with my money? I could um, renovate my house. I could go on a vacation. I could buy a new bicycle or something. And then if I've got money left over, I'll pay back debt. And the whole idea that you should always keep the money within the company, that's bad for the company because you're undergoing unnecessary interest expense or cost of equity. And it's bad for society because that capital can't be released elsewhere. And so I think for both of these reasons, we should be very careful about trying to um, restrict repurchases. Now, that is then quite apart from all of the research I've done specifically on repurchases. So what the UK government commissioned me and PwC to do was a study on the potential misuse of share buybacks. Are they indeed being used to boost CEO pay and to hit EPS earnings per share targets? Now, we had every incentive 
to find malfeasance, right? Had we uncovered this, we would have been heralded as being whistleblowers on the bad corporate capitalist system. But the data just didn't show that. Like we didn't find a single company over the 10-year period in the FTSE 350 that successfully hit an earnings per share target in a CEO bonus plan by using share buybacks. Because despite all of the fuel, share buybacks are just too small to hit earnings per share targets compared to other tools that you could do to do that such as cutting investment. So I think if there was ever a need for um, concern about CEOs doing things to hit earnings targets, it's not doing buybacks, but cutting investment to begin with that you could do and it would boost your earnings per share, even if you did not use the saved money for a buyback. So let's talk about taxes. In the US in particular right now, it's a big topic. There's proposals to have a billionaire tax on unrealized gains. There's talk of increasing the corporate tax rate. Does this fit into the pie-splitting versus pie-growing framework in any way? Yes, and uh, this actually doesn't really neatly fit within it. And I, I want to just be really honest here. And I say, well, my framework is really useful for, for many, um, I think my framework is really useful for many decisions, which is actually creating value. So these are things like the principles of comparative advantage and opportunity cost. But I will say my framework does not answer every single decision. And I know that there are gurus which try to have a hammer and use this to um, see everything as a nail. But when it comes to the best split of the pie, that is a value judgment. That is a political issue. And different citizens have different opinions as to is equality, inequality something that we all tolerate. You'll have some people who think, well, actually, inequality is absolutely fair. And others will say, actually, inequality is not fair. And I think that should be decided by a political process of the citizens of a country together in aggregate, electing a government which puts their preferences into account. The optimal split is something which is more subjective and, and, and a value issue. Um, so it's not something that my framework is as attuned towards assessing. Okay, that's a fair answer. We only have two more questions left for you. The first, you are the managing editor of one of the top finance journals. And how do you take your body of knowledge, your activism, educating the broader public into your role of being the managing editor and deciding which papers should be published? Is there a relation at all? Yeah, so what I want to do is, is to take risks. So I want to publish papers that I think are going to be novel and exciting, just like when I worked on social responsibility 15 years ago. Nobody cared about it. It was a risk for me to write that paper. The same with papers about soccer and music. And so the very first paper that I published when I became not even managing editor, I was just a co-editor initially, was a paper by David Yermak called Corporate Governance and Blockchain. So back then, probably five years ago, nobody really cared about blockchains. Right? I could have published that paper and it could have completely failed because blockchains could have been yet another one of these hyped up things that ends up not delivering. And that ended up being something which is, is now a really, really highly cited paper. One thing that I'm trying to do right now is really focus on diversity, but in geographic diversity. Why? Because we have so much research, which is US focused. And a couple of years ago, I commissioned a paper focused on Chinese corporate governance. And uh, back then, it was still not really clear that even though China was a growing economy, that the academic profession would really be citing these papers. And that paper has become highly cited. We're running a China special issue right now. One of the editors that we've just appointed to start next year is June Pan. She's a leading scholar based in uh, the Shanghai Advanced Institute of Finance. So really trying to broaden and ask sort of new questions. I think there's, I think there's two main ways you can do research. One of them is to go after a question that everybody's known about, but you are just smarter and able to solve it. So let's take Fermat's last theorem. Right? Everybody knew that was a problem. And then one really smart person was able to find out a way of doing that. Now, I am not smart enough to do that type of research. I am not technically that great in terms of modeling, in terms of theory, nor in terms of econometrics, in terms of data. But what I can do is find new ideas. So it was a crazy idea to look at the link between soccer and stock markets. And it was actually crazy 15 years ago to look at the link between ESG and firm performance. But once I had that research idea, 
it was actually pretty easy to run. So even somebody with limited econometric skills like me was able to do that. And similarly, those are the papers that I want to publish are ideas papers, which go into a new field rather than something which is on a subject that 30 other people have published in, but yours is just technically even more complicated. And that's what you're claiming as your marginal contribution. I just want to clarify to all of our listeners that you're not mediocre in any of the mentions that you just said. So, uh, but anyway, Doe, land this interview for us. At the beginning, you said about your passion in disseminating knowledge. Probably uh, in regards to this, you're also a Mercer's School Memory Professor of Business at Gresham College, which is a school with a history of providing free lectures within the city of London. What do you say to other academics about their role in educating beyond their immediate students and research papers? Should there be more of this? I think we have a big responsibility as academics to to educate more broadly. And we are really lucky. Anybody who is a professor, you have a a privileged position. You're somebody who's who's widely respected. And I do think it's the responsibility to share this knowledge more widely. Um, So this this Gresham College position is a huge privilege. I'm currently giving a series on financial literacy. That's something which is hugely important for, for social cohesion. Now, you can learn financial literacy by doing an MBA at London Business School or UT Austin or Wharton, but that's expensive. And then ironically, those who are most in need of it are least able to afford it. So I'm just giving this free lecture series on, it's called the Principles of Finance on Basic Financial Literacy. And I think this is something that um, academics should do. Well, why should you do it? Are you benefiting in terms of uh, getting uh, an extra publication, an extra line on your CV? Probably no. But I think these things are fun. And just to think about, yeah, you are having an impact. This is hopefully why most of us chose to become professors to begin with. We could probably get paid more if we went into industry. But I'm sure why did people choose a research career if you're creating knowledge? And I just say, well, creating knowledge is only part of it. Disseminating knowledge is really important as well. So I think as a a faculty member, that's something that we should try and do ourselves. And those of us who are in sort of more powerful positions, such as associate deans or heads of department, or even a professor on a tenure committee, can we start evaluating people according to dissemination? Yes, research is absolutely fundamental, but commonly it's 100% research and zero and everything else. I think that weight and everything else, reasonably you might disagree as to whether it should be 20% or 30%, but I am sure that it should not be zero. Alex, thanks so much for joining us today. It was a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks so much, Scott, and I really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for the invitation. We hope you enjoyed today's episode with Alex. He's a truly unique scholar, having excelled at the top level of academia in the area of financial economics, while simultaneously serving a public interest by educating the broader population on difficult-to-understand topics and issues. His TED Talks have been viewed over two million times. He gives free lectures to promote financial literacy, and his new book, Growing the Buy, provides a robust framework for thinking about how companies can pursue both profit and purpose. What I find perhaps most impressive about Alex is his ability to be an activist in support of many popular ESG initiatives, while also not being afraid to criticize fellow activists who try to take shortcuts in support of these ESG pursuits. There's a right way and a wrong way to go about it. Today's episode is a production of the Salem Center for Policy, housed in the McComb School of Business at the University of Texas at Austin. Our series is part of the Texas Podcast Network. The opinions expressed represent the views of the hosts and the guests and not the University of Texas at Austin. Today's executive producers are Abby Sawyer and Zoe Tarr in the Moody's College of Communication.